Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Eco Justice Radio acknowledges that we record the show on the traditional territory of the Tongva. Welcome. I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, the link between immigration, racism, and climate change. I will be interviewing Dr. Miguel De La Torre, professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Ilef School of Theology. Since obtaining his doctoral in 1999, Dr. Miguel De La Torre authored over a hundred articles and published 41 books, five of which won national awards. He is a professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Ilef School of Theology in Denver. A Fulbright scholar, he has taught in Indonesia, Mexico, South Africa, and Germany. Within his guild, the American Academy of Religion, he is the recipient of the 2020 Excellence in Teaching Award and the 2021 Martin Marty Public Understanding of Religion Award. A scholar activist, Dr. De La Torre, wrote the screenplay to a documentary on immigration. Missing from most conversations on the current immigration crisis is the role that racism and climate change play on people rendered unable to subsist and prosper due to the degradation of their lands and waters. When discussing these issues, it is vital that we consider the role failed crops, droughts, and devastating climate events are having in the global South and beyond. Moreover, when forced to migrate, what impact does the shifting of people have upon overstrained world resources? We must also consider the history of military dominance and regime change in these hard-hit countries as a means to facilitate trade and resource extraction for multinational corporations. On today's show, we take a deeper look into the intersection of environmental racism and the crisis at the U.S. border. And explore the impact that the shifting climate has on global populations whose lands are being devastated by hurricanes, wildfires, drought, and rising seas. Thank you for tuning in to Eco Justice Radio and our show, The Link Between Immigration, Racism, and Climate Change. I am your host Jessica Aldridge, and it is my honor to welcome our guest, Dr. Miguel De La Torre, Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Ilef School of Theology. Welcome to Eco Justice Radio. Welcome, Professor. Thank you for having me, Jessica. I am very excited to have you on the show. This is a topic that we've been wanting to cover for quite a long time, and one that I think a lot of people don't always connect the dots on. So, again, you are a professor at the Ilef School of Theology, which is hosting a conference on the intersection of environmental racism and immigration. There is so much here that we can talk about, from how climate issues are connected to an increase in immigration, to the role of religion and cultural strife. And we're going to get into all of that,、uh, but let's first start with understanding the purpose of Ilef School of Theology. What does Ilef teach? Their significance? What's their significance? And is the school is it Christian based? Is it non denominational? What's going on? Well, the Ilef School of Theology is a theological school, but pretty much most schools in the country are known for something, something that they contribute to the discourse. 
And what ILIF is known for is its commitment to social justice. One of the things we like to say is that people come to ILIF to learn how to be scholar activists. That is, scholars, scholarship is extremely important. A lot of our students go on to get PhDs and are teaching at colleges and universities, but also in training individuals interested in ministry and in nonprofit organizations for the purpose of changing the world towards a more just system, economically, racially, and obviously ecologically as well. So that's what we're known for, and that's who we are. We are probably one of the most left-leaning theological schools in the country. So I would say to the question on Christianity, we are loosely Christian. I mean, we are part of the Methodist church, but many of our students are non-Christians, are atheists, are agnostic. Some are from indigenous traditions. Some are Muslims. Others are Buddhists. Some are Jews. Some practice Santeria. So it's a very eclectic bringing together of different individuals with different faith traditions to learn from each other about essentially what is mystery. And, and the I Love School of Theology, like I mentioned, is putting on this conference happening October 21st to 22nd. And that's in 2021, in case people are listening, but it isn't an, an annual thing. So if you're listening later on, check it out. And whose speakers, as I mentioned before, will focus on this intersection of environmental racism and immigration. And we're going to talk about the conference later on. So I want to jump into this topic at hand, intersection of environmental racism and immigration. And I would venture to say that a lot of people may not realize that there is this strong intersection between climate change and immigration. And the discussions around immigration hardly, if at all, bring up this point. How is the current immigration crisis fueled by climate issues such as drought and and failed agricultural-based livelihoods. And nobody wants to leave their home. Nobody wants to leave the country in where they have been raised. And people are forced to move because of war, because of famine, uh, because of natural disasters. And obviously there are those who are trying to move to better themselves, but all too often, Migration, especially in in today's world, is connected to something that is pushing them out of the country that they know. And one of those issues, one of the main issues, is the rapid change of the climate. When you have islands in the South Pacific that are literally disappearing, what happens to the people who live on those islands? When, When the coastal areas of Africa, of Asia, Uh, And of course, the United States, think of Miami and Florida, begin to disappear and sink into the ocean. You have people who must leave those areas. And in Central America, when you have droughts because of the heating up of the climate, which is radically destroying the agricultural base of a people, these people find themselves on our southern borders trying to enter the very country that is the major culprit of this worldwide ecological disaster. And we're going to talk on that topic a little bit further on in the conversation here. So not only is there a climate change-driven crisis, there's this role of racism, right? What what does the role of racism play on those that are most affected by the degradation of the land? So, So let me give an example 
of this, and I'll use my own backyard, which as as a Latin American. During the early part of the last century, we had this philosophy of manifest destiny, that somehow God has chosen white people to give this promised land known as the Western Hemisphere. The problem is you had, you know, mostly Indians in the way. So, so you had to get rid of them, get, get them off the land. And once the U.S. is conquered, then we developed the cousin of Manifest Destiny, which is gunboat diplomacy. We've learned that rather than taking over other people's land, it's easier to take over their economies. So we began to invade these countries for the purpose of establishing governments that will protect our business interests, specifically the United Fruit Company, hence the name Banana Republics. Now, what ends up happening is that in the last century, we have either invaded to change governments or the CIA has overthrown governments, some of them democratically elected, for the purpose of maintaining trade, the freedom of trade. And here's the question. When one nation builds roads into another nation for the purpose of stealing their raw material and their cheap labor, why should we be surprised that those people take those same roads following everything that has been stolen from them? We have an immigration crisis because of a century of racism and ethnic discrimination that saw those in Latin Americans who were darker skin pigmentation as being less than and unable to have the the privilege of sovereignty. So this immigration crisis is not only a product of white supremacy in the United States, but more recently, that has been accelerated by our disregard for the planet and our disregard for how we, we, we deal with this planet. That is right. I agree wholeheartedly with that. And so the, the climate is changing, which causes people to experience instability. You know, what, what impact does the shifting of people have upon these already overstrained world resources? So their, their resources from where they're coming from are strained. They move to other places where then those resources become strained as well. And how does racism interconnect into that scenario? Well, we see it happening in our southern borders. We build a war to keep these hordes of brown people from crossing over. And then you see individuals like Tucker on on the Fox television show talking about replacement theory, that the Democrats want to bring in all these brown and black people from Latin America to replace white people in voting. So this fear of the other, this fear of the immigrant ignores the main reason why they're crossing the borders in the first place. And that is because of our foreign policy for over 100 years and our disregard for the environment and and allowing the planet to literally go into a death spiral. And I take that back. The planet will do fine. Those who are going to go into this death spiral is the human species. And in fact, maybe the best thing for the planet is our extinction as humans so the planet could heal itself. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not not 
advocating <laughs> that humans disappear from the earth. But what I'm saying is, if we really want to care for the planet, either we begin to deal with, with laws and legislation that could begin the healing, or we're better off being extinct so that the planet can survive and do well and see what other life form in the future could be better stewards of this planet. It's the saying that the world will shake us off like fleas. <laughs> and I want to talk about further, probably in the second or third uh, part of the show, when we come back from break, is, is about those that concept of solution and actions. And so for those listening, please stay tuned because I think we have a pretty significant conversation to have there and a, and a come to Jesus moment uh, <laughs> to, to, to play on that pun on things that we need to think about and, and how we need to really act in our current situation. So right now, let's dive into some of those places where we're seeing a significant shift in climate, in resources and people as we see this with immigration. Guatemala. Guatemala is in the news a lot when it comes to immigration, and they have seen multiple hurricanes and destruction of their agricultural base, in addition to a secession of corrupt leaders in league with multinational corporations associated also with the United States and organized crime, and that's resulted in political unrest. Why are the citizens of Guatemala coming to the United States, and do you feel that the U.S. government owes anything to the Guatemalan people for their historical role that the U.S. has played in their country? Let me answer that in two parts. The first part is what's going on with Guatemala. Uh, And you're right, Guatemala is a mess. And we're the ones that made it a mess. In the mid-1950s, Guatemala had a democratically elected government. And what they did was, at the time, 90% of the land Uh, was owned by 10% of the population. And the vast majority of the population, which was indigenous, owned 10% of the worst possible land that Guatemala had to offer. And most of the land was owned by the United Fruit Company, a multinational corporation. So the democratically elected president, Abanez, went ahead and, and, and tried to buy back the land from the United Fruit Company for the purpose of giving it to the peasants, to the, to the indigenous, to the campesinos. And he was willing to pay them whatever they said the land was worth on their tax forms. Now, of course, they undervalue the land for purposes of taxes. So they didn't like that idea. What they did was they went to their two former attorneys who were brothers. The last name was Dulles. At the time, one was the head of the CIA and the other one was the head of the State Department in the Eisenhower administration. So what they did was they created this phony rebellion in Guatemala for the purpose of overthrowing a democratically elected government. Now, this is the second time we did this. The first time was in Iran, and we know how well that worked out. And I want to say, for people tuning in, when we say we, you're saying the United States. I'm saying the United States, yes. Because I'm complicit because I am benefiting from these the riches that the United States has made off of Latin America. So what ends up happening then in Guatemala is you go into a 30-year civil war where hundreds of thousands of people literally are killed. This creates a, 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 an ability to return to democratic regimes, to democratic structures. So we politically destroyed Guatemala for the purpose of making a profit, And then to make it worse, as the climate heats up, 
you have more fierce hurricanes that are devastating the land. So what do you do when you can no longer grow enough food to feed your family? You head up north. You literally take those same roads that the United Fruit Company built following all that has been stolen from you. So, yes, we are responsible for what's going on in Guatemala, as well as Nicaragua, as well as El Salvador, as well as all the other countries in Central America. And and to the second part of your question, what's our responsibility? All too often when we talk about immigration, good white liberals say things like, we need to practice the virtue of hospitality. But see, the problem with hospitality is it assumes you own the house. And because you own the house out of the goodness of your heart, you're going to give a room to this poor, unfortunate immigrant. But if what I said earlier is true, that this house was built with the stolen resources and cheap labors of Latin America, then we're not talking about a virtue of hospitality. We need to be talking about the responsibility of restitution. What do we owe Latin America for everything we've stolen from them and for all the damage we have done there and all the overthrowing of governments that we've supported? That's the question we need to be wrestling with. And of course, that's not the question. That's not even, that's not even part of the conversation. It really isn't. It is not the part of the conversation when we talk about immigration. We're going to hold it there, come back, go to break, and and go over a few more examples of things that are happening, like in Haiti and Puerto Rico, and also here in the United States. So stay tuned with us for a moment here. We're going to go to break and be right back. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. Today, you are listening to The Link Between Immigration, Racism, and Climate Change with host Jessica Aldrich, myself, and guest Dr. Miguel de la Torre, Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Isle of School of Theology. Dr. Miguel de la Torre, Haiti, they've also been in the news recently, and their president was assassinated. They experienced a major earthquake Uh, two major earthquakes recently, devastating tropical storms. And now there's this significant mass migration to the U.S. through Mexico. How has climate change and environmental racism exacerbated their troubles? Yes. Haiti's problems go back even to the foundation of that country's liberation from the French. When they create their own republic, they become a danger to the United States. Because now you have Black people, former slaves, running their own government. Thomas Jefferson, who was the president at the time, would have none of that. Because it may give ideas to his own slaves of overthrowing their white masters here in the United States. So we have spent the rest of the last couple of centuries making sure Haiti never succeeds. So the racism part of the way we have looked at Haiti and the way we have treated Haiti has created a lot of the instability in that country. But it's not just Haiti, because the people who assassinated the president 
were Colombian militia. And the Colombians were fighting a war against the rebels in the in the um, in the mountains over cocaine and drugs, which was all fueling the United States' appetite for cocaine. So when the war in Colombia is declared over, now you have all these military people. And, you know, when Colombia was, I think, the, the third largest military armed country in Latin America with nothing to do. And the only thing that they could find to do is these type of militia work. So you find them in Haiti now as well. So the, the damage of the U.S. being the hegemony of in, in, in the Western Hemisphere is responsible for what went on in Colombia and then later how it spills over to Haiti as well. Now, obviously, you mentioned that there was an earthquake there, hurricanes increasing in the Caribbean because of the warming of the climate, and worse, they're staying longer over land and they're used to creating even greater damage. So not just Haiti, but all those islands on the Caribbean are in tremendous danger. And as those economies are destroyed by hurricanes over and over and over again, you either stay and starve or you take your chances and leave. Now, obviously, the United States has always been racist towards people from Latin America. But what we saw with the border patrols on horseback rounding up black bodies shows a new level of hatred towards the other that even shocked me. And I spent a lot of my time on the border seeing all types of horrible things. This was a new level of racism as part of our immigration policies. And they say that Biden is now responsible for the largest mass expulsion of asylum seekers in recent history. And we have to be careful. I mean, and I'm not going to say in any way that that Trump was good. I mean, the the Trump years were horrible for people of color. But liberal Democrats haven't necessarily always been our friends and our allies. Because let's, let's not forget that it was under Bill Clinton that we began deferment policies of Operation Gatekeeper. That's a policy that specifically makes it so hazardous that people are going to die. And it's okay if they die trying to cross the border because it would deter other people from trying to cross the border. So we developed this policy, not since Jim and Jane Crow, that is based on people dying to prevent other people of the stained skin pigmentation of doing the act of crossing the border. And even when the president happens to be biracial, that's not necessarily all that helpful, because as we know, the Latinx community always referred to Obama as the deporter in chief because he deported most more people than any other president up to that point. So I'm saying all this because it's so easy sometimes for us to say, oh, Republicans are bad and, and look how horrible they are in immigration. But it's been horrible from both conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats, well, I don't think we have had a liberal Democrat, let's say moderate Democrats, uh, on both sides of the aisle have not wanted to, to welcome the alien among them. Another one that is recent is Puerto Rico and the role that the U.S. military and the destruction that they're causing there. Can you speak to this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, when you think of the island of, of Viagas, which has been destroyed by the military pollution of the land. It's a crime. And you have to think, if 
that same destruction was done on an island off of Maine, all the resources of this country would have been used to clean up that island. Because after all, Maine is like, what, 90% white. But it's Puerto Ricans, so it doesn't really count now, does it? And therefore, we can destroy the, the, the island. We could destroy the land. And, and then when the hurricane, Maria, comes through, um, Jose, and then followed by Maria uh, a few years ago, and now, now does Trump do the greatest insult of throwing paper towels at people as though that some kind of animals, to, you know, to try to catch it. But then does everything in his power to prevent the necessary funds to rebuild to enter the island. And again, if the hurricane would have hit South Carolina, there would have been no bill unpaid that we would have gone ahead and make sure to, to, to help in the recovery as soon as possible. So here we see not only the destruction of the land because of climate change, but our response to that destruction, if they're brown and Puerto Rican, then, you know, tough. We, we make sure they don't get any money. But if they're white and South Carolinians, then, then we make sure that they get whatever monies they need. I wanted to say that, too, because there are communities in North and South Carolina, my, my family's from there, that are in marginalized communities that are Black, Latino, that are indigenous to those lands that have not received the proper support following some extremely major hurricanes that have come through those areas. So I think that leads me into my next question pretty well. And how are you seeing this narrative play out in marginalized communities in the United States? If you want to know where the waste recycle plants are, in other words, every time you flush your toilet, where all the substance in that toilet bowl goes to, those plants are predominantly in Black and Latinx communities in the United States. In fact, the vast majority of the waste plants that, that, that cleans up the race are in communities of color. Communities of color have greater numbers of pollution. In, in the town I live in, Denver, we've, we've discovered that one of the, one of the um, contributors to getting COVID is air quality. So we have a Latinx community in North Denver that had a, a much higher percentage, two or three times more so, of people getting COVID because of the air pollution than a, a white community just five miles away to the south of it in Cherry Creek. So if air pollution contributes to making you more susceptible to COVID, why should we be surprised that disproportionately Black and Latinx folks living in polluted neighborhoods, got COVID and ended up dying. So this air pollution segregation and where we segregate air pollution, waste pollution to communities of color is literally killing us. Hence, African-Americans and Latinx have shorter lifespans than white people. And all this is connected. You also refer to yourself as a former fascist capitalist, uh, <laughs> prior to becoming a professor uh, at the Ivan School of Theology, what was your former background? Did you, did you have a significant moment that you flipped your moral compass and, and has this contrast uh, of your, your history and, and your current situation, has that helped your, your work as you see it now? <laughs> yes. When I was 19, I began a real estate company. I was the youngest realtor 
in Miami, Florida. I was very conservative. I began the West State Young Republicans uh, Club. So I was very politically politically uh, minded. I um, I ran political campaigns and I ran as the most conservative candidate for the Florida House of Representative for the district I lived in. I went to seminary, specifically the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I shouldn't say that too much because they may try to deflock me if I keep saying it. But I went to that seminary, which became a fundamentalist seminary while I was there. And in that, you know, and and my idea at the time was to get my um, get my MDiv, become a minister, and then go back into politics so I could save America for Jesus. I mean, this was back in the '80s, and I was part of that movement. When I ran for office, I, uh, Pat Robinson endorsed my campaign at the time, so that gives you an idea where I, where, where I was. But a funny thing happened on, on my way to seminary. <laughs> I got a job at the library working at nights, and I was struggling with white, what I call now white theology. You know, this is that German Bruno and Barth and, and, and all these good German names. And then I was struggling with understanding them. So I went ahead and, and, and pull out every book in, in the shelf that had a Latinx name to it, not knowing who Gustavo Gutierrez was, not knowing who Bonino was, not knowing who Sobrino was. And for the listeners who have no idea who these people are either, uh, these are the form- formidable shapers of what came to be known as liberation theology. This was a theological movement that was rooted on the poor. In other words, it, it says that it's not that the poor have the answers, but the poor are closer to the truth of understanding God because they know what it is to live under oppression and they know how uh, the people who are the oppressors live. So they have a better grasp of the world. And in that point, reading these books, I had my conversion experience in where I've renounced my previous life and, and I embraced the the theology of the oppressed of the world and became a liberation theologian. Obviously, no church was, Baptist church was ever going to hire me. So I did what every unemployed grad student does. I went ahead and got my PhD and ended up now teaching at a theological school. So so that's the journey. So to answer your question, how does it inform me? Because I spent decades in the religious right movement and in the and in the and the far right uh, political movement, I understand, I, I really understand the thinking. I really understand the arguments. So when I speak, when I write, it's not that I dismiss them, but quite the contrary. I really try to engage them where they are. And, and, and I could do so with a certain degree of authenticity because that was my background. And the other thing that it did is um, once I began teaching at a theological school, I, I made a commitment that, you know, I would just speak truth and let the chip force where they fall. So you just talked about liberation theology and what that means, but I also want to get your opinion on how religious persecution and colonialism have led to cultural degradation and poverty and political strife in the countries where we are seeing the high rates of immigration. Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts on that? Speaking as an ordained minister, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say 
that the greatest threat to humanity has been Eurocentric Christianity, the Christianity of the colonizer, the Christianity that justify the genocide of people that preach that we are to dominate this world is has caused more death and will cause more death with more ecological degradation than probably any other de- ideology in the history of, of humankind. So I, I'm very clear about this. Just because I have a faith does not mean that I am not critical of the tremendous damage that that faith has done. Not the faith, but the people who profess to follow that faith. So I make a distinction between Eurocentric Christianity, which is rapidly becoming a nationalist ideology in this country. But I'm trying to also learn from the indigenous traditions of the world on how to better care for the planet, because Christianity does not have the answer on that. I mean, in Genesis, it says that we are to dominate the earth. And when you dominate the earth, the earth becomes an object, a commodity that, 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 that you take over. And, and when you dominate the earth, it's just as easy then to, to dominate humans, to dominate people. So what I'm learning from religions that are not celestial, that means they're not looking to the heavens for answers, but religions that are terrestrial, that they look to the earth as the basis for the spirituality, we find instead that the earth and, and, and the things that make up the earth have their own spirit, have their own life, and therefore have their own rights. The last conference we did was on water. And and we published a book based on the papers of of that conference that's called Going to Trouble the Water, Water and Environmental Racism. And and in the chapter that I wrote, I I bring our attention to traditions like the Yoruba people in in present-day Nigeria, which they look at the river, and the river is not just water, but it's actually Ochun, which is the goddess of rivers and streams, or Yemaya, who is the goddess of the ocean. Uh, So you don't, you can't pollute the river because, in fact, you are polluting a deity. You're polluting a a spirit, Um, and and that spirit has its own rights. You can't sell a part of a spirit. You can't negotiate or bother, you know, what a spirit is. It is, it has its own dignity. That, that Christians ignore altogether. The Chinese look at the Yellow River and, and, and they see the deity Hebo, H-E-B-O. And, and again, that is a, a, a spirit. The, the, the Hindu River, I mean, the, the Ganges River in India is associated with the goddess Ganga. In fact, every indigenous tradition looks at the elements of the earth as something spiritual. And we need to recapture that, I think. You shared with me a Latinx belief of the three sisters. And the three sisters, or the trilogy, shows up in many faiths 
um, not just Christian faiths mm-hmm. across the world. And you shared me with me, the three sisters. Do you want to speak to that one before we go to the break? Of course. The three sisters is an indigenous tradition, mostly in Central America, that looks at the three sisters being bean, squash, and corn. And yet, uh, you know, and, and these three sisters have been part of the indigenous traditions for literally millenniums. And we are destroying one of the sisters, specifically corn, by by our NAFTA policies. And, and beans, you can't buy beans if you live in Central America because they're all being shipped to North America on trade. So it's not just that we are destroying the land, we are destroying the culture, we're also destroying the spirituality of a people. And not just in Central America, but multiply that to all different regions throughout the world. Thank you. We're going to go right to the break and be right back. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Friday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. Today, you are listening to The Link Between Immigration, Racism, and Climate Change with host Jessica Aldrich, myself, and guest Dr. Miguel de la Torre, Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Isle of School of Theology. Dr. Miguel de la Torre, you are a professor, as we've talked about. You host student immersion classes to walk migrant trails in places like Cuba and Mexico and the U.S. border. Tell us about these classes and why you feel this is an important part of your student studies. The uh, chair of my dissertation committee used to always say that the classroom is correctly named. It is a room of class. It is the room where you learn your class that you belong to, and it's the room that trains you to be a member of that class. And there are some rooms of class located in Ivory League institutions that train you to take over the reins of power. And then there's room of class in where the poor and people of color usually go to, which teaches them how to become more domesticated into social structures. In a way to turn over that room of class and to, 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 to subvert that room of class, I believe it's extremely important not to teach people what they should know, but for them to discover it for themselves. And the best way of doing that is to actually go to the locations where oppression exists. I wrote a book called The Immigration Crisis, colon, The Ethics of Place. And what I'm arguing is, you don't learn about the world through books. You learn through, about the world by talking to people who are negatively affected by the way the world is structured. So, for example, I take students to the U.S. borderlands, and we walk the trails, and we leave water, and we leave food, and we come across migrants, and we come across migrants who are in dire medical need of help, and we provide that assistant. We come across migrants who haven't, you know, had no water, and we try to provide that. And, and we hear their stories. 
and we hear why they are there and we hear why they are crossing the borders. And in doing that, our consciousness arrays. And, 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 and when our consciousness arrays, it's a whole different understanding of the world than what we may have read in a book. Now, don't get me wrong. Books are important. I've written like 40 of them, so I don't want to diss books all of a sudden. But books are, ins- uh, are not enough. They're, they're insufficient if we are not literally engaged with, 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 with the public who is suffering. That is what makes our scholarship come alive. And that's and what your- changes the lives of the students as well. Of course. And in your books and lessons, you also speak to gender oppression. Mm-hmm. Why are women usually more at risk? And usually, and especially during times of crisis, be it climate or immigration, you name it. Let me put it this way. One of the sad facts about immigration with women is that before they begin the journey northward, for months beforehand, they start taking birth control pills because the chances of them being raped are extremely high. And and I I cannot imagine what it means to know that I may be violated just in order to have my children eat. I I, I can't understand that. And, And most of your listeners, whether they be male or female, may not understand what it means to risk your very body so that your children can eat. They are the oppressed of the oppressed when it comes to these issues. They are the most vulnerable because of of global misogynism. (laughs) And even the border patrol that we would imagine could be an arbitrator in protecting them have also been found to be their violators as well. So, yes, in one of my books, I argued that you really can't begin to deal with racism or classism until you deal with uh, sexism. Because the idea of sexism is the domination of the other, putting the other in a subordinate position, which is the same paradigm that we use in racism and in classism. They're not three separate things. They are interconnected with sexism being the model by which oppression operates. So, no, absolutely. I can't deal with racism. I can't deal with classism if I do not deal with gender oppression. And speaking about these topics of gender oppression and racism and immigration and climate issues, these are very heavy conversations. They are real. This is happening. So what is our role as humans, as active players in this world? Are we able to simply say, hey, here's the solution. I found solutions. Check off the box. Implement them and you're fine. Or is this something much more complex? Are, how are we to respond and approach our current scenarios? The worst thing we could probably do is say we have a solution. The worst thing we could probably do is say we have hope it's all going to be fixed and worked out. It's not. Hatred, oppression, sexism, racism will continue to exist in my lifetime. In, I'm a little bit older. In your lifetime, you're a little bit younger. 
and in the lifetimes of our children and our grandchildren. So to say that I have hope that this is going to be fixed is a delusion. So I wrote a book called Embracing Hopelessness. And in the book, what I argue is that once I realize that oppression will continue, then I stop trying to fix it. I stop trying to find a solution. And instead, what I do is I try to subvert it. In other words, if neoliberalism has won, if racism has won, if trying to overcome it could cause me my life, literally, then how am I to be, as Jesus would say, wise as serpents, but gentle as doves? And what I argue for is what I have been calling an ethics para joren, which I I won't translate it into English because uh, the the literal translation is a certain four-letter word that begins with F and ends with K. And I won't say that on the radio. But basically, this is an ethics that screws with the structures of oppression. It is playing the trickster. It is, for myself, it's living into the African Orisha Elegua, which is the Orisha, which of uh, which is the trickster. It's how do I play the trickster in front of power structures that could kill me so that I could maybe raise issues and questions. You see, hope is too dangerous. When you walked into the camps at Auschwitz, the sign over the camp when I was there said, work will set you free. See, that gave you hope that you might survive. And if I have hope that I might survive, I won't make waves. I I won't rebel. I'll, I'll keep my head down. I won't make eye contact, but I'll still end up dead. But once I realize I have nothing to lose, that's when I become the most radical and the most dangerous. So what we need, I believe, to, 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 to really bring about change, not only in the environment, but change in how we deal with sexism and racism and classism, is to become so radical because we have nothing to lose, that it literally subverts and challenges and changes everything. Think of Jesus walking into the temple and overturning the tables of the bankers. That's the type of praxis, or what I call the ethics para jorel that I'm calling for. You gave me an example before today's show of a a, a gentle civil disobedience action of a bunch of faith leaders that stood up uh, one by one and prayed. What, yes. what was that? I would like to hear that story. Of course. But before I do, let me, let me just take a step back. It, uh, this is not civil disobedience. Civil disobedience <laughs> is the laws are bad. Jim and Jane Crow laws were bad. So you disobey the laws to get new laws. We have good laws on immigration. The immigration, you know, the, 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 the international laws on immigration is you're supposed to take in refugees. You're yeah. supposed to take in, you know, those who are uh, uh, fleeing oppression. These are good laws. The United States is the one that is practicing civil disobedience by not practicing the laws that they agreed that they were going to live up to when they signed these international treaties. 
So what we're trying to do instead is practice civil initiative. That is forcing the government to live up to the laws that they said they are going to live up to. And the way you do that, I would argue, is by screwing with the system. And the example that I gave you earlier is, and and this happened in in Tucson, and we're doing Operation Streamline. This is where you literally bring 100 immigrants caught crossing the border in front of a judge in chains. I mean, I sat in the courtrooms in chains. And within, and I timed it on a stopwatch, within less than 30 seconds, two or three of them are charged, their trial is heard, and they uh, they plead their case, and then they are convicted all in less than 30 seconds. It, it's like a assembly line justice. It, it, it violates our laws of due process. You know, it literally violates the constitutional guarantee of due process. So again, the, the, the United States is in civil disobedience by not following its law. So what we do, and, and I'm talking about people like normal deaths, and I did not come up with this. They're the ones that came up with civil initiative. What civil initiative means to them is that they hold the government responsible. So in this particular case, a rabbi stood up during the, the court procedure and, and started praying to Yahweh for forgiveness for the sins that we're committing. And as the bailiff takes him out, a Catholic priest stands up and starts praying to God, to Jesus for, for, for the horrors that we're inflicting on these people. And as he's being taken out, a Muslim Iman stands up and, and prays. And, 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 and it disrupts the court system, doesn't change much, but it brings to the public, especially through newspapers, how we are violating not only the laws of humans that we agree to follow, but also the laws of the creator um, that, yeah. that, 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 we, that we also need to keep in mind. So, Dr. Miguel, you mentioned this book that you have written called Troubling the Water that is about racism and water. And I know that this is a much greater conversation than we can have today. But maybe give us the Cliff Notes version on how access to clean water has a systemic connection to racism. Communities of color, access to water is usually water that is more polluted and more damaging to their bodies. And probably the best example I could give, or maybe I should say the worst example I should give, is Flint, Michigan. And where even though we knew the water was harmful to its um, to people drinking it, even though we knew this, because they are predominantly Black, we don't care. And, and I think that is really the shame that this country should, should, should hold on to, that, that, that somehow we don't deserve water, that black people and brown people don't deserve the very essence of life that gives them life. And I think this is what the book truly struggles with, making this connection between those who can have water and have it clean and have it plentiful and those who have to struggle just to get water. So we have about five more minutes before the end of the show. And I want you to tell our listeners 
about the conference that's coming up uh, that's being put on by the ILF School of Theology and the, the topic being the intersection of environmental racism and immigration. And that's happening again on October 21st and 22nd, 2021. What are some, uh, pitch that to me. What are some of the poignant topics and speakers who can attend this? Is there a price and how do people get more information on that conference? Of course. First of all, it is open to everyone. The price is something like about $5. It's just a minimal fee to make sure that we have people register and that they could attend the the conference. Your listeners by now should realize that when I approach immigration, I do not approach it as a scientist or as an expert on the environment. I am not. I am a social ethicist. My expertise is the understanding of the intersection of racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, and and that's where my focus is. And then I use that intersection to study different issues, whether it be the economy, whether it be, um, in this case, the environment. So the conference, the way I designed it was to bring in voices from around the world to be able to discuss the environment from the perspective of the least of these, of those who are the most marginalized. So the way the conference is 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 designed is that we have speakers from Palestine, from Nigeria, the Caribbean, Tonga, Fiji, Indonesia, the Dalit community in India, Canada, um, African Americans, Latinx on the U.S. borders, and the Himalayas. Just to name some of the people who will be making presentations at this conference, and, and, and in their presentations, they're going to be talking about how the environment is causing the movement of people. The title of the environment of, of the conference is Shifting Climate, Shifting People. How the shifting of the climate is directly linked to the shifting of the people. And we're hearing from all these people from all parts of the world. At the end, in a couple of years, all these papers will end up being a book as well and will be published. But it's a conference that I, I recommend people to come. We have unbelievable speakers uh, from these areas who who could speak with authority to these issues. And where do people get information? So that if they want to participate and sign up, where do they do that? So probably the easiest way is to get on the ILIF website, www.ilif.edu, ILIF, I-L-I-F-F. Once there, there's a tab on Eco Justice, the Center for Eco Justice, and right in the Center for Eco Justice, there is a link. If they have difficulty with that, they could always just send an email to ecojustice, E-C-O, justice at ilif.edu. That's the email address. And we could also send them information that way. So before we, we wrap on the show, are there any other resources that you want to recommend? Maybe your books, um, maybe other information that's out there uh, to our listeners that are interested in this topic and others. And where can people find more information about the books that you have released and uh, anything else? Sure. I'll answer the last question first to get a, a better idea of the books that I've released and the type of work I do. You could always visit my website, which is drmigueldelatore.com. DR being, of course, doctor. So drmigueldelatore.com, one word. And all my books, articles uh, are listed there. 
what I would recommend is that all too often, a lot of the books being written on eco justice and a lot of the conversations that we have on eco justice come from the dominant Eurocentric culture. And that's fine. I mean, there's a discussion that needs to occur. But I would encourage and challenge your listeners to, to look for those books written by people of color. One of the leading uh, group right now is eco-feminist scholars, womenist scholars. Those are African-American women scholars who are also dealing with environment. Uh, you know, just type that in Google and, and you'll get a whole bunch of different resources and books that they could look at and examine and, and articles that they could see. So so I would encourage your, your, your listeners to, to, to listen to the voices from the margins, those who are most affected by the way the environment is, is rapidly changing. Because I believe that, that, that to listen to those voices uh, will provide insight that all too often those from the dominant culture um, is just simply unaware of. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Miguel de la Torre. And everyone, again, Dr. Miguel is joining us from uh, is a professor at the Isla School of Theology. Please check out the conference. We as Ecojustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste will also post about the conference and get the information out there. I think that it is a wonderful opportunity for all of us listening here today to tune into that conference. And thank you again for joining us. I have extremely enjoyed this conversation today and I am really appreciative of what you're doing and and the information that you're putting out there. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been an enjoyable conversation. <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Miguel de la Torre, Professor of Social Ethics and Latinx Studies at the Iliff School of Theology. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been The Link Between Immigration, Racism, and Climate Change. Please connect with us on social media at Ecojustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, well, you know what to do. Subscribe to our podcast, share the episodes, Get that knowledge out there and help us continue our efforts by making a donation to the show at ecojusticeradio.org. You've been listening to Ecojustice Radio and KPFK Los Angeles. A project of SoCal 350, the show can be found on kpfk.org, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morse, executive producer Jack Ipe, producer and co-host Jessica Aldridge, co-host Carrie Kim, engineer Blake Lampkin, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.